Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the New Ground Life and Leadership Podcast. I can't tell you how excited I am to bring you today's conversation. I know I say this every time. I mean, genuinely, every time I am very excited about the conversations I've had with people and the people I'm talking to. So I'm not being insincere. But today, I get to bring you a conversation I had with Professor Nancy Piercy, and I first read her books years ago and for a long time I've admired the things that she's written and said I've heard her speak online in different settings and I reached out to her a while ago when she released her a current book or a latest book entitled The Toxic War on Masculinity How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes so I reached out to her a while ago and just punted could we have a conversation about it and she agreed and so I was super thrilled to have the opportunity to talk with her and then You know what they say about you should never meet your heroes? Well, that couldn't be further from the truth. She was a wonderful lady. So nice to talk to. In fact, after we'd finished recording, we we carried on talking for a further 45 minutes in its own right, just exploring various ideas and the work that she does. So I really would encourage you to engage with her work, engage with her books. Um, All of the information, the things that we talked about in our conversation is going to be available in the description to today's episode. So do check that out. There's some great book recommendations and links to Houston Christian University, where she's a a lecturer. She runs uh, several classes. One she's just finished teaching on C.S. Lewis, uh, the logic of C.S. Lewis, which uh, sounded very exciting and interesting. But for today's conversation, we explore themes of masculinity and culture and the church. And I know what you're thinking if you follow the podcast regularly. We're doing a lot of conversations at the moment about masculinity. I promise this is the last for a while. But it is a subject that I think we in the church and those in leadership need to be engaging with and aware of and just be thinking through. It seems everywhere I go, people are talking about gender issues in church. And so I think it's important. But I promise, no more for a while on this subject. Thanks so much to all of you who listen regularly and retweet or just text or email to say that you're enjoying the conversations. It means a lot. It's just wonderful to know there are some people out there who listen. So thank you to those of you who do that. Um, I'm glad to hear that some of the conversations we're having um, are also encouraging you. That means a lot to me. Do, Do please like and subscribe so that we can get these conversations out to more people. Share them with friends. And for now, that's it, I think. I'm going to hand over to my conversation with Professor Nancy Piercy. Enjoy. Professor Piercy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. It's good to be here. Oh, it's lovely talking before we started recording, just hearing about all the amazing work you're, you're doing, uh, the classes you teach um, at Houston Christian University, which I'd love to find out a little bit more about as we go. Um, but today, I'm really excited to be able to talk to you about the content of your book, uh, toxic war on the toxic war on masculinity. Um, I'd love that if we could just start by considering the changing attitude towards men and masculinity as outlined in your book. Uh, in other words, how many men, how, how were men and masculinity thought about in different cultures and at different periods in history? Well, the reason it's become problematic today is that it's become socially acceptable to attack men quite viciously. Uh, One of the first uh, headlines that I saw that told me this is a problem is uh, the Washington Post had an article titled, Why Can't We Hate Men? And a Huffington Post editor tweeted, hashtag kill all men, as if that were a joke. 
another joke, by the way, was so many men, so little ammunition. You can buy T-shirts with that slogan. And, and there are books out with incredibly blunt titles like I Hate Men and No Good Men and Are Men Necessary? And even some men are jumping on the bandwagon. A fairly well-known male author wrote a book in which he said, talking about healthy masculinity is like talking about healthy cancer. So, well, and, and I'll give you one more example, because this was in the news not too long ago. Um, so it's not in the book, it's more recent, but the director of the movie Avatar was in the news for saying, uh, his name is Jim, James Cameron. He said, testosterone is a toxin that you have to work out of your system. And so it's not surprising that surveys are now showing that about half of Western men, um, there was a survey in America, survey in Britain, and both cases, about half of American men said, um, society seems to punish men just for acting like men these days. So I, I thought this is what I wanna understand. Uh, where, how can we get to the bottom of this? Where is this incredible hostility coming from? And so that was the first reason I wanted to write the book is just, you know, you can't stand against a social trend unless you know where it came from and how it developed. So, so there's a good bit of history just saying, well, where did the, you know, where did concepts of masculinity come from? How did they develop? And in particular, how did they get more and more secular? Because the definitions that people don't like tend to be the secular definitions of masculinity. And so I wanted to contrast that with a biblical view of masculinity. Mm. Oh, wonderful. I mean, you, you do this in the, in the first few chapters of the book. You talk about the difference between a good man and a real man. Do you mind uh, expanding that for us? Yeah, I, I really jumped on this because it was a sociological study. So this is not my own idea. Um, but I put it in the front of the book because uh, to, to tell you the truth, to my surprise, this is the most controversial book I've written. Uh, I really thought Love Thy Body would be. <laughs> right? Because it deals with issues like abortion, homosexuality, transgenderism, which are still really hot button issues. Um, but at least in the Christian world, this was more controversial. The word masculinity is such a trigger word that when I was, um, when I was writing the book, I always have a lot of reading groups. That's my, that's my key to um, finding all the rough edges of a, of a manuscript. And when they would tell their friends and family about it, invariably, the first question was, whose side is she on? not like you have to have a side. Um, most men simply assumed that a female writing a book on masculinity would be a male bashing feminist, which I'm not. Uh, and more progressive types um, tended to think, well, she's probably, you know, reactionary, defensive, culture warrior type, uh, which I'm not either. So, so I put this study at the beginning, beginning of the book because it sort of helped overcome that initial suspicion. So a sociologist named Michael Kimmel speaks all around the world. And so he came up with this clever experiment where he would ask young men, what does it mean to be a good man? If you're in funeral and in the eulogy, somebody says he was a good man. What does that mean? And the sociologist said all around the world, young men had no trouble answering that. They would immediately start listing things like honor, duty, integrity, sacrifice, do the right thing. Look out for the little guy. I kind of like that one. Uh, be a provider, be a protector, be responsible. And the sociologist would ask them, well, where'd you learn that? And they'd say, I don't know. It's just in the air we breathe. 
Or if they were in a Western country, they would often say it was part of our Judeo-Christian heritage. And then he would follow up with a second question. He'd say, what does it mean if I say man up? Be a real man, except he used coarse language. <laughs> um, so, and the, and the young men themselves would say, no, 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 that's completely different. That means be tough, be strong, never show weakness, win at all costs, um, be competitive, get rich, get laid. <laughs> I'm using their language. And so the sociologists concluded that this is really interesting that men everywhere, because this was global, around the world, men seem to understand what the good man is. This is an innate, inherent, universal awareness. I mean, I would say we're made in God's image. And so as a result, men do have this innate knowledge of what it means to be the good man. And when we ask them to live up to biblical standards, we're not imposing something alien on them. You know, we're, we're coinciding with our own best knowledge, their, 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 their conscience, Romans 2, right? We all have a conscience. We do know right from wrong. But young men are reporting that they also feel pressure to live up to the quote unquote real man. And those traits are quite different. Um, you know, so I, I mean, they're not all, all bad, tough and strong. But if they are disconnected from a moral vision, they can slide into entitlement, dominance, uh, sexual promiscuity, um, you know, get rich, get laid. <laughs> so it's, I, I use that throughout the book then as sort of a, a guiding thread. Like how did we, how did we lose the, real, the good man? How did our culture come to embrace the real man? And it's also, I think, a, a better way to approach these issues because men don't respond very well to being called toxic. <laughs> Nobody would. But what we can do then is can we affirm and support and encourage them in this innate knowledge of what it means to be the good man. And that gives us a much more positive way to approach these issues. Mm. Oh, that's right. And that, that comment about the good man is a, is a universally kind of understood idea i think I'm, I'm i've seen you tweet about this since the book came out as well with showing yet more evidence that people from around the globe uh, acknowledge these aspects of positive masculinity so where where does that come from you say it's just a kind of an innate thing that god's put in us is it i, I would have thought that the way we think about masculinity would have been so shaped by christ that we would have had a particular slant on it in the west oh well yes yeah, i mean i do go into more detail in, in the book uh, on, on what's distinctively christian but I think it's very encouraging um, to recognize that uh, it's like a creational given. Here's another study. So this was uh, by an anthropologist. Um, and again, it was global. And he, he was looking specifically at concepts of masculinity cross-culturally. And he found that no, no matter how different the cultures were, they all shared a common code of manhood. And he called it the three Ps provide, protect, and procreate, meaning become a father, you know, build into the next generation. And I thought there it is again, you know, that there does seem to be, you know, men are made in God's image. They do have an inherent sense of at least the basic understanding of that their, their unique masculine strengths were not given them just to get what they want, you know, but to serve and help others. Because you know, we have to acknowledge men are bigger, stronger, faster, you know, this, this is speaking of creational givens, you know, this is just how God made men. Um, 
75% greater upper body muscle mass, 90% greater upper body strength. Uh, and because of testosterone in general, they're more aggressive and risk-taking. They even have more fast twitch muscles. That's a word I had to learn. It means they can react more quickly. Um, and so we have to, we, it's important that we say these are good. You know, when we're in a society where masculine strengths are being said to be bad and evil and this, you know, the source of, of oppression and patriarchy, um, it's important that we acknowledge that, no, God made men this way. And these surveys are showing that, that men do intrinsically, inherently know that those strengths were given them to protect, provide for, and if necessary, fight for the people that they love. Mm. So I, 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 I loved so much about your book, but I, and what I really love is how much you're able to kind of reach back into history as well and show how different cultures and societies have related to and thought about the, the creational differences between men and women. Um, so it wasn't, hasn't always been the case in the West, at least, and certainly in other cultures that people have thought about masculinity in such a, a way that we are in our particular cultural moment. Um, so I'd just love to get your reflections and comments on how, how you think men and masculinity have been treated in different cultures and different times in history. Yeah, well, you know, in my book, I stay primarily with the U.S., just to put limits on it so the book isn't too big. Um, but it also made it a little easier because uh, the U.S. was perhaps, uh, because of the First and Second Great Awakenings, um, was, was the most religious nation even in the Western world, the most Christian. Um, and, and of course, we were founded by Puritans. <laughs> so um, so I, I go back to before the Industrial Revolution. Before that, men worked alongside their wives and children all day on the family farm, the family industry, the family business. And so the cultural expectations at the time focused much more on their caretaking role. Here's a uh, fun fact. Most books on child rearing back then were addressed to fathers. You know, today you go in a bookstore, they're mostly addressed to mothers. But fathers were thought to be the primary parent, and fathers did, in fact, spend as much time with their children as mothers did. That's hard for us to even imagine. Um, and, and even secular historians, I love it. One, one historian puts it this way. The definition of masculine virtue was duty to God and man. <laughs> you know, mm, duty. So question is, how did we lose that? And it, it was twofold. It was, it was economic, and of course, it was, it was the secularization of Western culture. Economically, what happened is the Industrial Revolution took work out of the home. Men had to follow their work out of the home into offices and factories. And for the first time, they were not working alongside family members, people they loved and had a moral bond with. Instead, they were working as individuals in competition with other men. And already in the 19th century, you see people start to complain or protest that men were changing, that they were losing their caretaking ethos of the colonial era. They were becoming individualistic, self-interested, egocentric, greedy and acquisitive, to use the language of the 19th century. And many complained that men were starting to turn their career into an idol. I, I was amazed at how often people used that word. Because before then, you know, you worked within the family unit. It was obvious you were, working, you were working for your family. But now men began to think more in terms of, no, I'm working for my own, you know, financial success, my own um, career achievement. The, the mentality began to shift. And that shift was reinforced by the fact that 
also after the Industrial Revolution, there arose a huge public sphere. You know, I mean, there was not a, a sharp public-private divide before that, when economic work was done in the home. But now they develop these large factories and businesses and financial institutions and universities and, of course, the state. And people began to argue that these large public institutions should be run by scientific principles. But what they really meant was value-free. Don't bring your personal values into the public realm. And since, it, which is what we hear today still, right? That, that was the beginning of that. And since men were working in the public arena and getting that secular education, they did become secular before women did. And so a lot of the negative traits that we associate now to certain types of masculinity, that's where they started. And again, you can see in the, in the literature of the day, because men were no longer governing their behavior by biblical principles as much, historians all agree that there was a huge increase in drinking, gambling, fighting, gang activity, um, and prostitution. And so men's behavior did very objectively uh, grow worse um, as, as the impact of Christianity was lessened in the public square. So the, the twofold, on the one hand, you know, men being disconnected from their family, and then secondly, the secularization of our public life. Mm. Oh, yeah, it's really helpful. I remember actually you saying that reminds me of, um, I spoke to Dr. Danielle Trewick on this podcast, who's written a book on singleness. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, she's a wonderful lady. And she, in a lecture I heard her give, made this observation about the Puritan era, that that the, the wives and the pastors, at least, were very concerned about the men going out of the home to work. They considered going into the, the world of work as being quite dangerous. It's the domain of darkness and Satan. And so they would, they would urge their wives, their women, to pray for their men as they went out. And they saw it very much as this kind of sacrificial leaving the place of safety, if you like, and out into the world of work, which was corrupting because it was built around those themes of dominance and competition. And it was just pursuing mammon at the very least, um, which I think that that attitude towards the working world does seem to be almost have disappeared now. It's a, your work and your career is the place you go to be fulfilled or to self-actualize. And there doesn't seem to be as much concern about people being corrupted by the world, at least, and the competition, the competitive nature of work. Would you agree with that? Would you have any comments on that? Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, I mean, the days of early industrialization, it, 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 was, it was pretty dark, you know, and children were, you know, going out to work too when they were working in the factories and so on. And uh, I, I wrote about when the workday was reduced to 10 hours and then to eight hours. Wait, what? What was it originally? It was 16 hours in many factories. Um, uh, and, and a lot of the laws that we think were motivated by religion were actually motivated to get fathers home, like the eight-hour day, um, but also like Sunday laws. We thought, we thought that was motivated by Christians wanting Sunday worship, but actually um, many of the people who argued in the 19th century um, was we need fathers to have a day home. You know, when men first started going out to work, you know, we're so used to it. Fathers being gone all day, but it was a shock. It was a huge shock at the time. Uh, I, I quote uh, a parents magazine, 1842. Uh, the author said, the greatest source of domestic sorrow today is that fathers are gone from weekend to weekend. Uh, the head of the women's Christian temperance movement wrote, our fathers, our fatherhood has become a Sunday institution. You know, they're not there during the week. 
the leading psychologist of the day said, our boys are half orphaned, half orphaned, because, you know, the father's gone most of the day. And so our boys are growing up without that masculine presence in their life anymore. And so, it, yeah, it was a real shock. Um, adding to, and just, that's just the father being gone. Um, and in fact, men, people began to complain that boys were becoming uh, wild and unruly because their fathers were not supervising them anymore. And, uh, and that added to the 19th century breakdown of behavior as well, because these unsupervised boys who were becoming wild and rowdy as they grew up what, and they went into the cities, they also then were more prone to the, to the vices in the city, like drinking and gambling and prostitution. Sometimes a single historical fact can crystallize it. So uh, in 1830, Americans drank three times as much as they do today. So public, public drunkenness was a real problem. You know, people falling down drunk in the alleys. And so that's why we had a temperance movement. <laughs> you know, a lot of the reform movements of the 19th century were grew up in order to counter what were essentially male vices. In other words, you know, um, I'll, I'll give you one quote. So this is from a feminist historian, but she said, all of the reform movements of the 19th century were implicit condemnations of males. There was no doubt as to the sex of the tavern keeper, the slave master, the drunkard, and the seducer. And so there was also another dimension of this is the tension between men and women, as women were essentially called to be the ones who maintained the home the home became the place, like you said a moment ago, that was safe. That was the realm where you could still live out Christian values and Christian virtues. And women were, for the first time, by the way, first time ever in human history, women were said to be morally superior to men. And so the men would come home at night and they were supposed to be reformed, refined, and renewed by their morally superior wives. So that was the dynamic of the 19th century. And I would say it's kind of the Me Too movement. I mean, we still see it, right? We still see uh, many times that women are kind of seen as, as the ones who have to hold men in check. It's the, it's, it's the men who are more likely to be violent and rude and sexually promiscuous, blah, 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 which I disagree with, but that's kind of the understanding and that it's women who have to hold them, you know, hold the line morally and try to control men. But this all grew out of the 19th century. Mm. Can I ask a question about what you just said there? You said, I disagree with that idea then that, that men are, sorry, pick up on that, that men are more likely to act violently or sexually promiscuously. Uh, talk to me, if you don't mind, what, what's behind that? Well, there's, the, I go through several stages of the uh, secular, the secularization of society's view of masculinity. And one of the most important ones uh, is the rise of Darwinian evolution. And that was a bit of a surprise because most people think that's just about science, biology, but it actually had a huge impact on cultural views of masculinity because Darwinian writers began to say that the men who won out in the struggle for survival would be the ones who were ruthless and brutal and savage, barbarian and predatory. Uh, instead of urging men to live up to the image of God in them, they began to say, oh, no, just live down to your animal nature. The beast within was their favorite phrase. 
and and this was by the way not just historical it's come it's come back in a big way uh, it's social darwinism now goes by the name of evolutionary psychology you know the idea that if our bodies evolved so did our minds and all our ideas and one of the a best-selling book on the subject is called the moral animal and the author says the human male is a possessive oppressive flesh obsessed pig giving him a book on how to have a better marriage is like giving a viking a book on how not to pillage and i thought really you can get away with demeaning men like this but this was his evolutionary perspective and there's a new one well it's not new it's an older book that's just been reissued which you may know because it's been it has been around a while george gilder's book men in marriage and he too says by nature men are violent irresponsible and sexually predatory the greatest yearning is to escape you know escape civilization to a escape to a primal mode of immediate gratification well i disagree with this because i don't think this is a biblical view of manhood <laughs> i don't think we have to say we don't equate manhood with their sin you know it, it is true that men maybe have certain characteristic sins and women have other sins that are more characteristic um but i think what these definitions do is that they equate men with their sin and say well this is just the male nature put up with it it's the andrew tate phenomenon right um i was going to ask you a bit about andrew tate because i think that my observation of andrew tate is he seems to be um a reaction to like he's giving voice to a reaction of males that feel you know um what's the word i'm looking for demeaned and constantly told that they're the problem so people like that who feel constantly overlooked and demonized by society have found someone in Andrew Tate that they are looking to to help them but he seems to be drawing from um, the real man script almost entirely for what makes for positive or effective and good masculinity so I'd just love to get your reflections on why you think Andrew Tate's become the phenomenon he is and and what you think we should do about it yeah yeah so um someone summarized Andrew Tate as fast cars fast money fast women So I thought that was a good way of putting it. Um and he, and and he has I have seen him in interviews call himself a pimp, you know, quite openly and say that what he produces is pornography. Um Andrew Tate, let me tell you where that started. At toward the end, okay, so the 19th century was an era of a lot of these reform movements, right? And the reform movements were trying to counter these male vices that had become so much more prevalent in the 19th century drinking well that's the temperance movement you know gambling fighting uh, the the um abolition movement you know slave masters slave masters taking sexual advantage of female slaves that was the heart of much of the rhetoric we've forgotten that but that was one of the major arguments people made at the time um and of course uh there was something called the social purity movement which was against prostitution and sex trafficking but what happened is of course many of these reform movements were, were led by women and they were addressing male vices so what happened by the end of the 19th century men began to rebel they began to say stop you know blaming and accusing us what you just said a minute ago actually started back in the late 19th century men began to say well maybe that's just our nature maybe men men are just by nature lewd rude and crude and leave us alone <laughs> you know that was the beginning of the andrew tate phenomenon 
you know, stop telling us that men's sins are so particularly bad, um, or we're just going to turn around and say, this is who we are. Um, and that's what happened. You know, the secular script was around there for them to pick up. And so they said, look, you know, the Darwinian script, we're ruthless and barbarian, and that's just who we are. And so Andrew Tate is just finally where that has come to the fore. You know, he's become perhaps right now the most, the most influence, the, the largest influencer on, um, on the Manosphere, you know, the Manosphere is those online men's rights groups. Um, and, and he openly says, you know, he, he's not going to get married. And, if, and even if he did, his woman, his wife cannot expect him to give up other women because men are just like that. Men are just naturally that way. And uh, he's been followed now by uh, somebody named Myron Gaines, who has been heralded, heralded by the New York Post as the new Andrew Tate. And his tagline is, I help men turn from simps into pimps. And he says, uh, you should never, he says openly, you should never get married because a woman can never expect, you know, loyalty from a man. That would just be contrary to his nature. But the, that turning point was in the late 19th century where men began to say, you know, you're asking us to live up to these standards and you're, you know, the social condemnation is so extreme that we're just going to say, this is who we are. That was a, that was when the turning point happened. And it's just now, you know, over time, uh, crystallized. It, I agree with you. It is a reaction, but it, it's a reaction to, um, to the 19th century reform movements, you know, to be precise. And, and what it does mean, and I have to tell you, I talk to um, Christians who say they still, they think it's the double standard is still in the church as well. I was interviewed by a young married couple who had their own podcast. And so I decided to turn the questions on them. Right? And I said, what do you think in the church today among young people, uh, do you still have the double standard? And they said, absolutely. It's absolutely uh, understood or assumed that men are more like more prone to sin and vice. Men are more prone to pornography and adultery and affairs. And it's women who have to hold them in line. You know, it's women who have to hold, hold up the moral standard, the moral ideal. Um, and men's sin is always just threatening to break through, you know. And if the woman does anything wrong, it's her fault if he goes in, and, and uh, engages in porn. Um, because, of course, that's more his nature. And so, anyway, their report was quite was quite concerning that it seems to be a dynamic that still young people are experiencing even in the church. Mm, it does seem to be there's a almost like a perfect storm, isn't there, of coming together of different ideologies. You talk obviously about um, social Darwinism, um, Marxism with its emphasis on history being essentially oppressor and oppressed. Uh, but then also you've got Freud reducing us down to um, the libido and the necessity to satisfy our sexual instincts and urges. And then, of course, you get the just the permission from a lot of this to just indulge your sinful nature, we would call it in the name of science. This is who you are. And there is this idea that men are just wild, need to be out um, in, in the wilderness, away from everybody else, or they're antisocial and all of that, which, of course, I think you, there's a phrase you use in your book that men um, live down to their, your expectations of them. <laughs> and it puts un, unfair and undue pressure then on the women in our lives to be messiahs or pure, pure beings who can save males uh, and reform them and re transform them. Um, 
Well, I loved I loved so much of your books. I mentioned that there's a brilliant quote I'd love to read because I'd love to talk a little bit about just some of the, the ways that stereotyping of men and women can be harmful. And we see this in the church, even I think in, the, in sometimes in the, the type of events that we run for men or for women appeal to these stereotypes, perhaps. But I love the, um, I just want to read this quote, if I can, from C.S. Lewis. Uh, I always love finding a new C.S. Lewis quote. And <laughs> and it turns out, you, you shared with me earlier, you're, you, you teach a class on C.S. Lewis, um, which I'd love to learn more about. But C.S. Lewis writes this, that it is arrogance in us men to call frankness, fairness and chivalry masculine when we see them in a woman. And it is arrogance in them, women, to describe a man's sensitiveness or tact or tenderness as feminine. Um, can you say a little bit about stereotypes, the differences or non-differences, if you like, between men and women? Yes, um, I love that quote, too, by the way. I don't think I've ever heard anyone quote that Lewis quote before. <laughs> You know, for him to say it's arrogance to have uh, cultural, to have sexual stereotypes. Yeah, um, it is true. I mean, let's face it, since since the book on masculinity is about those things that are unique to men, it's important to start out by saying that men and women are more alike than they are different. If you take any character trait, you know, you get a bell curve for men and you get a bell curve for women and they overlap very closely. Even a trait like aggression, I was kind of surprised to find out, you know, that they, they overlap so closely that there's a lot of women who are more aggressive than a lot of men. So the the differences tend to be mostly at the extremes. And that's why 90% uh, of prison inmates are male. They're at the, that, the extreme of aggression. Um, so so I do think it's important. It's, it's easy for us to kind of, you know, women are from... Venus and men are from Mars, we almost get the impression that we're never going to find common ground. And that can be discouraging. So I think it's important to start by saying, no, every psychological trait that's been measured ha you know, has been an overlap. If physical traits don't, you know, uh, f physically men and women are different. And most of our psychological differences come from that. I mean, uh, you men are bigger, stronger, faster, and women, women's superpower is that they have babies. You know, the, the main reason that feminists are so concerned, anyone, but uh, especially feminists have been very concerned about acknowledging differences is because as soon as you acknowledge a difference, they're going to, people think one is less than, you know, it's just human. We all do that. If you make a distinction, one's going to be less than. So it's very important, I think, that as we affirm that men and women are different, it's important to say that women's strengths are strengths, <laughs> that those things that are unique to women are also strengths, that it, um, in most cultures, women spend a big part of their adult life having children. And they do, um, they score higher on tests of emotional intelligence. And I think that's partly learned behavior because when you have a baby, it's a, it's very demanding, right? The raising a child, it you you have to be on call twenty four hours a day. You know, if the baby's in distress, you don't tell it later. You don't say, you know, you don't scold it. You don't reason with it. You know, you meet its distress immediately, no matter what you wanted to do. And so it builds enormous stores of patience and sensitivity, uh, sensitivity to nonverbal cues because they're not speaking yet. Um, and so I think that it's important for us to say uh, that they, they become mama bears, right? Because they also have to be sensitive to threats in the environment to their children. And so 
I, in my book, I, I literally said, you know, when women are strong nurturers, they reflect the character of God, just as men reflect the character of God, because after all, Genesis tells us they were both made in God's image. And, you know, I had people disagree with me on that. <laughs> I had me men, <laughs> I had men basically so, say, no, women do not reflect the, Im the image of God in their character. So apparently that's the point that has to be made. Of course they do. They're made in God's image. And so what's unique to women is just as much the image of God as what's unique to men is the image of God and needs to be respected and honored as a reflection of God's own character. Mm. You mentioned that you said something about our biological differences then are born out psychologically. They have a psychological impact in large part, perhaps because of our learned behavior, because there's a, a the section in your book where you say that not only um, are women more nurturing as a result of children, the male brain changes if he's present and actively engaged. So actually, uh, our idea that men are should be going out to work and they're not as good at home as mums is actually a socially conditioned thing because men have generally been out in the last 50, 60 years or 100 years. Um, I haven't said that very well. Perhaps you can say that better for me. Oh, I'm so glad you asked because it's one of my favorite parts of the book. <laughs> um, so I, I am not averse to uh, appeal to men, appealing to men's self-interest right? that they actually benefit from having children because, you know, typically we have kind of this notion that men have to be coerced and browbeaten, you know, into being more involved with their, with their families. I had a graduate student who was the women's the head of the women's ministry in a large baptist church here in houston and she said um on mother's day we we would hand out flowers and tell the women they're wonderful on father's day we would scold the men and tell them to do better you know so that kind of scolding doesn't really work but what can work is the recent scientific data showing that in fact men benefit enormously from becoming fathers it starts with certain neurons in the brain that get activated. Uh, one psychologist calls it the dad brain. The dad brain, that there are neurons that literally get uh, activated only when you become a father. And um, it also, one reason women have a little head start in bonding with a baby is because of the hormone oxytocin, which arises during pregnancy. Um, and people always thought only women had that. Well, it turns out men also have oxytocin. Um, it's in, in men, it's you know, stimulated by the tactile sense. So they actually have to be holding, cuddling and playing with their child. But when they do that, their oxytocin is going up. <laughs> and so is the babies, by the way, the babies goes up. They're all together bonding um, when they have that kind of contact. And the the most surprising thing I found, and this was the most recent finding too, an anthropologist found that men's oxytocin is going up all through the nine months of his wife's pregnancy. You know, apparently no one ever thought to, to check a man's blood <laughs> during his wife's pregnancy. But when they did, they found out that men are also being actively biochemically primed to be a full partner in the parenting team. And so, you know, God has equipped men you know, biochemically uh, to be involved fathers. And, and I do quote a lot of men, uh, you know, who, who were interviewed. Um, one was a pastor who, beca who became um, a father later in life. And he said, I feel cheated. No one ever told me 
how fulfilling it would be to become a father. You know, why aren't people talking about this? So the men who do become fathers often are, are shocked because the culture hasn't prepared them to understand how incredibly engaging, you know, their relationship with their children would be. Yeah, it's really helpful. You're, um, you, I think the, the, the anthropological starting point that we use is so important, isn't it? If we use social Darwinianism as our anthropological starting point for what makes a man and what makes a woman, then we'll end up in one place. But what you do, and I think this is superb, I've not seen this before, you point out from the creation account that it was to the man and the woman that God said, you know, um, fill the earth and subdue it. In other words, make culture. The cultural mandate was given to women as much as it was given to men. But it was also, be fruitful and multiply, was given to men as much as it was given to women. Now, men are called to be engaged fathers in their homes and were made for that purpose from the beginning, just as women were called and made to be creation, create, uh, sorry, culture creators and subduers of creation. And that, I love that because you just, you bring out the importance of partnership, which I think is, you know, what's, what seems to be lacking in so much of the conversation. It's about the differences and the, the fighting and the tensions. And, you know, is it the industrial revolution? Is it feminism? Is it the sexual revolution? What is it that's caused this tension? Well, so we'll just go further back. And I see, you know, our foundational text for our anthropology says that partnership was God's original plan in both the domestic and the um, productive spheres. Um, is there anything you'd comment on or add to that? Well, yeah, because I have to tell you, you know, half my students don't even know the term cultural mandate. And so it is something that we've got to be able to explain. And so I, I come back to it, I think, three or four times in the book because um, it's such an important counter to two things. It's an important counter to a kind of pietism that's reduced religion to going to church and having Bible studies. You know, if that's the only thing you have to, to offer men, no wonder men don't go to churches often. You know, men, right now, the average American church is probably similar in other Western countries, is 60% women, 40% men. And people have wondered, well, why is that? Well, most men are not drawn to sitting on a circle talking about your feelings about this verse in the Bible. So the cultural mandate gives men a much richer, fuller calling. Um, and by the way, and it's also counted to a second, this reaction in the Christian world too, that's, I, it's not quite as bad as Andrew Tate, but it is, uh, well, men find their truest self by being wild, you know, getting, like you said a moment ago, going out mountain climbing and hunting elk with a bow. You know, whitewater rafting and nothing wrong with those things. But is it how you measure your masculinity? It's also that's also a reaction to the 19th century. Um, so I to counter both of those. I, I go to the cultural mandate, the cultural mandate for people who don't know what that means. It's it's the name given to a verse, the verse in Genesis. But, you know, God's created the first human couple. And what's the first thing he says to them? You know, he tells them why he created them. You know, what's your purpose? You know, what's your job description as a human race? And he says, be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. And the language of Genesis is so streamlined that you can sort of unpack many layers of that. Be fruitful starts with the family. And as you noted, that's very important because a lot of men don't think that. But by the way, it, Margaret Mead, the very famous anthropologist, said, motherhood is natural. Fatherhood is a cultural construct. Well, if you think that, 
And then you're surprised that men are not motivated to become fathers. <laughs> you, you know, no, it is natural because God gave the cultural mandate to men to start with, be fruitful and multiply. And of course, the family is historically the foundation for all the other social institutions. It becomes a, a tribe, a, a clan, uh, a nation. And you need social institutions for particular purposes. Like you need a state, you need a church, you need a school, you need a marketplace. And so you can unpack that to say it's, it means that men are responsible for creating all of these social institutions. It's a very rich understanding of our calling. And then, of course, subdue the earth means harness the natural resources. So that has everything to do with, you know, starting with agriculture, but mining and technology and inventing light bulbs, and creating computers. And I, I always like to add composing music. One of my students once said, come on, composing music. And I, I said, well, I play the violin. What's the violin made out of? Wood. And what's the bow made out of? Horsehair. So all of the transcendent beauty we associate with music starts with harnessing the raw materials of nature. And so this is called the cultural mandate because what it says is human beings were given the job of creating cultures, you know, building civilizations, making history. It's a much richer understanding. Now, that gives men in particular the scope to accomplish, to achieve, you know, to have mastery, um, to have an influence, to have an impact. You know, these are these are things that men maybe especially have a drive to do, and it's the cultural mandate that gives them the biblical basis for that very rich, full sense of purpose. Hmm. Yeah, that's really good. I think it's. I, I think a lot of men would agree and find a lot of their purpose and value coming from that world of work and creation and productivity. I think what seemed to me to be fairly novel and fresh from what I read is that your argument that actually men are also can get that level of satisfaction and enjoyment from the home um, from being an engaged dad you know I talked to John Tyson recently about um, the importance of dads discipling their sons and it's uh, and something I'm quite passionate about personally I think the church has neglected this we've hired youth workers and thought they can yeah. just look after our kids for us we think no we've got to we've got to get dads back engaged with discipling our sons rather than always just paying a youth worker but that's Perhaps a side issue, but no, no, but no, as you talk about, me, yeah, well, it's not on. a side issue because um, uh, before before you change the subject, um, one of the most interesting studies that I quote in the book is a thirty-five year longitudinal study. It won all kinds of awards um, on how families pass along their religious faith, and. They found two surprising things. One, fathers matter more than mothers. You know, if a father is a committed Christian, his kids are more likely to follow him. And the mother has an impact, of course, but the father has more impact. Um, my, my female students, by the way, said, well, that's not fair. And I said, well, but it's a fact. <laughs> I'm sorry. Fathers have, <laughs> fathers have influence whether they want to or not. But the second thing was that it only works if the fathers have a warm, loving relationship with their, with their son. Um, so that a father can be a pillar of the church, right? And a moral exemplar and have perfect theology. But if he's perceived as cold and distant, his, his, his kids won't follow him. They won't. It, it depends on that warm, loving bond. And, and interestingly enough, it was reinforced on the secular side. There was a study done more on a limited, more limited question of how do you 
produce masculine sons. So this was interesting. Um, and he found the same thing. Uh, he found that the, the father's own masculinity didn't matter, you know, because some fathers are more out there, some are more gentle, some are more sort of, the father's own masculinity didn't matter. What mattered was the close, warm, personal, loving bond, because that was what gave a son the secure, stable sense of masculinity. So the studies are really putting the emphasis right where God puts it, you know, on, on mm. fathers. Wow. I mean, maybe you're mentioning that we can comment a little bit about some of the stuff you share in the book as well about male headship in marriage and in the home, um, that a proper biblical understanding of that leads to, surprisingly, the best marriages uh, in society. But perhaps you could talk a bit about headship as you understand that and the importance of having a biblical definition of that. Yeah, so uh, this this is the most fact-based book I've written. And, uh, and this part, for example, is based on sociological studies of Christian men. Uh, we've all heard the secular narrative is that Christian men are like exhibit A of toxic masculinity. Um, I'll give you just one quote. I found lots of them. Um, but this was the, the co-founder of the Church Two movement, which followed the Me Too movement. And she said, the theology of male headship feeds the rape culture that we see permeating American Christianity today. And so the social scientists were listening to this and saying, but where's your evidence? You're making these charges, but where's your data? And so they went out and did the studies. And I quote some dozen or so different studies uh, on Christian couples. And to everyone's surprise, including mine, they discovered that Christian men test out at the top in terms of being warm, loving, and engaged husbands and fathers. Uh, the, their wives report the highest level of happiness with their husband's love and affection. Evangelical fathers spend the most time with their children, 3.5 hours per week more than secular men. Uh, they have the lowest rate of divorce, 35% lower than secular couples. And to everyone's surprise, they actually have the lowest rate of domestic abuse and, and violence of any major group in America. And so, well, let me give you a quote. Sometimes that really crystallizes it. The, the, the sociologist who did the largest study was Brad Wilcox. He's at the University of Virginia. And to give you a sense of his stature, he writes in places like the New York Times. So this is a New York Times article. And he said, direct quote, it turns out that the happiest of all wives in America are religious conservatives. Uh, and they focus on the wives, of course, because the, the idea that these marriages are oppressive to the wives. Uh, but the, the happiest of all wives in America are religious conservatives, fully 73% of women who hold conservative gender values and attend church regularly with their husbands have high quality marriages. And then he, um, he then he turns to his colleagues, you know, uh, sociology is a very secularized discipline. And he says, academics need to cast aside their prejudices against religious conservatives and against evangelicals in particular, because Protestant, evangelical Protestant married men with children are consistently the most loving and engaged husbands and fathers. So this is the data. You know, this is not a pep talk from some religious leader. This is solid empirical data. This is 
evidence-based findings, and we should be very confident in bringing it into the public square and, and also bringing it into our churches, you know, to encourage Christian men who feel beaten down. You know, when, when I told my class at Houston Christian University that I was writing a book on masculinity, one of my male students shot back, what masculinity? It's been beaten out of us. So we need to bring this data into the church and, and help counter the negative stereotypes. Mm. Well, it's, I mean, it's interesting, masculinity being beaten out of us, or like even just un unpicking exactly what that means. Well, I, I wonder if from a one, one of the observations, and I'd love to get your your comment on this as someone who would have observed this much more than me, even in the brief, brief amount of time that I've been a Christian, um, I've noticed that even the language of headship has fallen out of fashion and favour. We have tried to change what headship means and say, oh, it doesn't mean head, it means source, or it means this, or it means that. And men aren't, husbands isn't, the husband isn't the head of the wife in the way that we used to think of him anymore. That seems to have just almost just gone, which means, which has left Christian males with probably a less clearly defined or celebrated or even talked about vision of what their role is supposed to be in the home. And the, the call even for husbands to lead their wives responsibly and lovingly. Um, I mean, you, you obviously plot the, a lot of the changes back to the, the Industrial Revolution and the change in society in the 19th century. Um, it seems to me that from the 1960s, there does seem to be, in, particularly in the, the theological circles, a reaction against headship in the home headship in the church if you like and i mean i'm not i'm not necessarily wanting to get into the discussion about complementarity and egalitarianism i think you managed to to sound like both in the book at different points which is wonderful but i just i would i would love your observations um on how you think the church and evangelical christians think about headship in the past 50 years or so well on the one hand you're right i didn't deal with it in the book but i explain why i didn't deal with it um two of my top researchers said it doesn't seem to make a difference so the first one was a sociologist, uh, Brad Wilcox, who I've already mentioned. Um, and he said, you know, we, uh, in our findings, in our studies, we didn't find that the husband's gender theory is how he put it. The, hundreds, the uh, husband's gender theory, whether he thinks a man's ahead or not, didn't seem to have an impact on his wife's happiness. You know, he, he, could, he could be complementarian, he could be egalitarian. Um, they did one study, in fact, he and one of his colleagues, on egalitarianism per se. And they said, the women weren't any happier. He said, I mean, you might expect it, right? You, um, in our day and age where we think equality is so important, you, you would expect that an egalitarian marriage would be happier, but they did not find it. Um, and there was an earlier study too that said, um, part of it is because if you get into a, a, a strict 50-50 mindset, you're constantly comparing, you know, did he do as much as I did? Um, and so that may be why. Um, that was from an earlier study. But the main point is that the studies have not shown that uh, the husband's gender theory made a difference. The other, the other uh, I said there were two top researchers that I quoted. The other one was a psychologist. Um, he's not a Christian. His name is John Gottman. He's considered the top marriage researcher in the country. And and he said the same thing. He said, couples coming into my practice sometimes think the man should be in charge of the marriage, and sometimes they're more egalitarian. And he said, and here's how he put it, um, emotionally intelligent husbands <laughs> have figured out the important thing, which is how to convey honor and respect to your wife. And your gender theory doesn't seem to be what really decides that. What does decide it, by the way, um, 
and this is again um, Brad Wilcox. He said, "What decides it is whether the is whether the husband puts his family first. If he has a family-centric value system, does he think the family is the most important thing in his life? Does he think the family is the foundational institution of society? Um, does he think that as a you know being in a Christian family means you know sexual fidelity to his wife?" Um, all those those things tend to you know, those ten, they tend to cluster around a high view of the family more than anything else. People who didn't have a high view of the family were the ones who are more likely um, to have unhappy marriages. So that was so interesting because it, it was not the gender theory so much as family centered values that made a difference. Mm. And you mentioned that the man there, not because necessarily he's the more dominant member of the household, or would you say that he is? I guess you're saying it because it's more of a natural given that the woman is going to be family-centered. It's unusual. Is that what you're saying? Well, actually, I was just reporting on what he found. I guess that's he when okay. he reported his findings, he did say, the, uh, because the question was, you know, does the, if the question is phrased as, what difference does it make whether a husband believes in male headship or whether the husband believes in egalitarianism. That was kind of how they framed it. And when they said, no, that doesn't make a difference, they said, well, what does? Well, it's the husband's focus on, whether he focuses on the family, to coin a phrase. <laughs> does, he, does he focus on his family? Is that the most important thing in his life? Is that what he thinks is his most important calling before God is, is his family? So that's just how the research was was phrased. Um, and And by the way, also, I have a whole chapter that's just surveys of Christian couples because, you know, I don't want to hear another theologian tell me what headship means. Um, that, that That's fine, but that was not my point. You see, I, I'm an apologist at heart, right? I want to defend Christianity against a secular culture. What is the secular culture saying? It's saying that the concept of headship is going to turn these men into overbearing, tyrannical, oppressive patriarchs. That's an empirical claim. Therefore, it needs an empirical answer. In other words, does it? Does that theology turn men into overbearing patriarchs? You have to ask, you have to look at the men. You can't look at what those leaders say they should be. You have to look at what they do, in fact, report. And that's what social scientists do. They go out and study the guys and they, they study these couples and they say, well, how do you work out headship in your family? You know, in your in your male uh, husband wife relationship, you know, what does it look like for you? Because they're asking, is does this theology turn these men into into monsters? <laughs> and I was just, I was as blown away as anyone. I was uh, when I read the actual survey results. You know, quotations from these men and women. Um, I, I was quite blown away by how loving and respectful respectful they treated headship. Now. Because these were theologically conservative uh, couples, um, a, a majority were did buy into co complementarianism, um, but that was still not the question they were asking. You know, they were asking, you know, does the concept of male headship, you know, make these men into monsters? And so, that's that's a, some people have criticized the book because they wanted me to give like the theological answer <laughs> and they don't understand that you know i'm not i'm not engaging in these sort of in-house debates I, and i don't want to i want to i want to answer the secular world the secular world is saying 
Christians, because they believe in any, any form of male authority, they are going to have these unhappy marriages that's going to be oppressive to women. And the, the facts just don't bear that out. The facts debunk it entirely. That's really helpful and really, really, I think, important to stress, isn't it? It's like you said, it's an empirical study. You might not uh, like to quote your student, I don't like that. Well, it's the facts, whether you like it or not. It almost doesn't matter. One of the things you, you do point out is that conservative Christians who take the Bible seriously and recognise that headship properly applied is the imitation of Christ our head who laid his life down. And the trouble is that um, headship and la verse, language of headship and Bible verses can be used and have been used in the past as a almost a, a license for domestic abuse, um, which I'm not going to necessarily open up now because of time, but there's a whole section in your book on that. You yourself share your personal story, which I just found those chapters devastating emotionally, <laughs> incredibly courageous on your part, really, really helpful and important that I think people have to buy the book to read it and find out more about that. But um, just as I guess as we, as we close, is there anything else that's on your mind or heart you'd love to share with us as we close and consider perhaps the application of a lot of this in our churches? Well, I'm glad you brought that up, that up because I think for, for, for balance, for the sake of balance, it, it is important for us to recognize that, um, that nominal Christian men um, do not test out well. Um, the first pushback I always get is, haven't we all heard that Christians divorce at the same rate as the rest of the culture? And so the, the social scientists did go back to the data and they made that very important distinction between men who are you know, committed, authentic, attend church regularly, and men who on a survey like this might check the Baptist box, for example, but who actually don't attend church very often, if at all. And you know, in the West, we do have a lot of these cultural Christians, the people who identify as Christian or, you know, I, Give them a denominational, they'll say, yeah, that's who I am. Um, and these men actually test out with all the, with all the toxic stereotypes. In fact, they, they, their, their wives are the least happy. They spend the least amount of time with their kids. They have the highest rate of divorce, even higher than secular men, 20% uh, higher than secular couples. And then the real shocker is that they have the highest rate of domestic abuse and violence even higher than secular men. And so this is one reason, um, well, one reason that Christians have a, a negative reputation is because people hear about these Christians or these, you know, ostensibly Christian men um, who are taking words like headship and submission, but infusing them with meaning from the secular world. You know, when we talked about how Darwinism has impacted the secular definition, for example, you know, they will take concepts like that and then put it in, you know, under the label of Christian headship. And it's not, it's a secular definition. So the task for the church, by the way, is, you know, on the one hand, how can we really encourage the men who are doing well, you know, who are regular churchgoers, who are committed, and, you know, we need to stop scolding them um, and tell them, tell them that, you know, they're, they're doing well, they're running the race and give them the support and encouragement that they need. On the other hand, is there a way to have a better discipleship program that reaches out to these nominals who are sort of at the at fringes of the Christian church? By the way, my students don't know what nominal means, so I have to explain. N-O-M is Latin for name, so it means people who are Christians in name only. Um, how do we have a discipleship program that reaches out to them and helps them to realize that what they're doing is not biblical 
and you know bring them into the fold and, and help them to acquire a much more biblical understanding of you know of a christian worldview especially of masculinity mm. oh it's really helpful in fact i i conducted a wedding recently where i did a i did the address to the couple after they got married and i said to them you can have the best marriage in society or the worst marriage in society it just depends how seriously you're going to take jesus <laughs> yeah that's a good application <laughs> yeah. uh, well thank you so much for your time today professor piercy um uh, just as we close, maybe could you let us know a bit about the uh, Houston Christian University that you work at and uh, may maybe an opportunity for any of our listeners to engage with your work there? Yeah, I, I, we were talking beforehand because before we went on air because our, our school does do a fair bit now of auditing, you know, bringing in auditing students. And I have had so much fun in auditing uh, students who come into my classroom. You know, there's, a, there's a panel on the wall, sort of like a computer screen, where they all show up, like like a Zoom meeting, um, it's a, it's synchronous, so it's not an online class where you can just take it whenever you want. You do have to show up at a particular time, but then you interact with the students who are in the classroom. They see you, we see them, and they participate just as much as anyone in the classroom. They bring such a richness to the to the class discussions because they're coming from all these different countries. We've had them from Switzerland and Philippines. And where else? Uh, Australia, Canada, um, Germany. We have had so many auditing students, and they, of course, they have to get up at odd hours sometimes <laughs> to join us. But yeah, I, I'm glad you had asked me to talk about it because I, I think it's a wonderful opportunity. We are finding that there's a lot of people who say, "I'd love to know more, but I don't need the I don't need to spend money to register and get credits." Well, that's what auditing's for. It's so that you can sit in the classroom, read along with the students what they're reading, join the class discussion, and learn just for your own personal enrichment. And so we're getting more and more people as they find out about it. Our auditing program is really growing. And you know, some some schools have a lot of online classes. It's not at all the same. No, when you're part of a discussion and you're you're getting that kind of personal interaction. The dynamics are much, much different from just an online class. So, yeah, I, I really I highly recommend it. If you go to Houston Christian University and you look for the page on auditing, you will see two words, by the way. We do not fulfill the legal definition of auditing, so we had to come up with a, a new label, and it's called survey. So it says auditing or surveying <laughs> students. So look for the word audit survey. Uh, just Google it. And you'll find you'll find the page. And you teach a class on C.S. Lewis. You mentioned it. I'm just finishing that class on C.S. Lewis. We had okay. so much fun. Oh, I, I'm getting the best feedback on this class because C.S. Lewis, of course, is so profound and such a good writer that he rewards you very well for digging in deeper, no matter what book you read of his. But it's philosophy of so. So it's primarily his philosophical arguments. Um, and, and then. Uh, Houston Christian University is the only university that has a degree program in what's called cultural apologetics. Cultural apologetics was coined, the term was coined to describe what Francis Schaeffer did, because he didn't look just at ideas sort of in the logical ether, right? arguments and ideas. He looked at ideas as they percolate down through cultural forms, right? through, through, art, through art and literature and music and movies. Right. So because that's how most people pick up their ideas about life 
you know, they don't say, hmm, I think I need a worldview and go sign up at the local university in a philosophy class. <laughs> they don't do that. They're picking up their ideas through the books they read and the movies they watch and the music they listen to. So it's very important for Christians to have that kind of cultural literacy, you know, that they can recognize worldviews when they come to us, not in words, that's easier to recognize, but when the worldview is expressed, you know, through the plot of, of a movie, you know, through the composition of a painting, um, you know, in, in images and pictures and stories, you know, how do you discern worldviews when they come to us in cultural forms? So we're the only university that actually has a degree program in cultural apologetics. So that's what one thing that makes it unique. We, we, get, we get such a wide range of students, you know, because we get very artistic literary types and we get very philosophical, intellectual, cognitive types. We just get the whole range. You can tell I'm, I'm very excited about it. Well. I love it. I mean, I could I could just stay on and just talk to you about this for hours, um, but I must let you go. Uh, thank you so, so much for your time today. It has been an absolute treat and an honour. Um, we will put links to your, your books along with information about Houston Christian University in the description to today's episode. Uh, but God bless you. We should be praying for you and looking forward to reading anything else that you have to write in the future. Thank you. Appreciate it. <laughs>